and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. We are in the book of Revelation, and we're going to be in chapter 3, looking at verses 1 through 6, and the church of Sardis. So, as we're here in the book of Revelation and going through these seven churches, a few things for you to remember as we approach the scripture. Um, One is that there were probably about 100 churches in the New Testament era that Jesus could have chosen to address. Um, Through the Apostle John, he chooses to address these seven. And so, as we look at these seven, what we see is we see some sort of tight of different churches, types of perhaps different Christian experiences. Um, And yet, uh, these types can overlap as well. So it's not as though every church matches one of these churches. Uh, There are overlapping experiences. Um, As we approach this, the other thing to remember is that when we we turn to the Bible, uh, we are getting God's word. So this is God interacting uh, personally, Jesus interacting with the Apostle John, giving him a revelation and a vision of things that are to come. As we got in the book of Revelation, you sort of get the outline. He says, things which were, which are, and which are to come. And so as you look at this, there's a historical part of this where Jesus is uh, talking through the Apostle John to historical churches. Uh, there was a time period where these, these seven churches were just sort of maybe viewed as allegorical, that they didn't actually exist, but here's seven types of churches. Sir William Ramsey, if you don't know who that is, interesting Google, a guy to look up, uh, approached the Bible from a non-believer's perspective, went to attack the book of Acts and after going through the book of Acts became a Christian because he realized that the historicity, the historical accuracy of the scripture is really amazing. And so he did work on these seven churches and what he found was these were real churches with real things going on, real people, and that the way that the message is addressed to each of these seven churches actually revealed that they were historical things that were going on in those churches at that point in time. So there's a line in this one to the, to the church of Sardis where Jesus talks about coming like a thief in the night. Well, this was really something that they understood because uh, they thought their city had amazing defenses and twice they'd actually had someone show up at night, attack the city, and they lost it to someone that came like a thief in the night. So uh, Jesus speaks to them in a way that they would understand. Um, now, when we approach the scripture, one of the things that we have to do is we have to, under, we have to in order for us to get it, we have to go, well, what was the original writer trying to communicate to the original reader? Um, and then once we've done that through a process of understanding language, language, history, and culture. We look at the original language, the Greek. We go, what's happening historically at this point in time? What cultural things were going on? And then we can go, okay, this is what Jesus is communicating to this church at that point in time. But there's also relevance to our lives as well, because these things, one of the things you'll hear people say is that the Bible might not be relevant. Well, it, when humans stop being sinful, the Bible will stop being relevant. Um, and so what it does for us is it reveals the places in our lives that would match the circumstances that were going on at this point in time 
and then gives us God's answer to that problem. So with this church here, they're, they're a church of people-pleasing pretenders. Uh, they're hypocrites. They put on a mask and they pretend like they have the life of Christ. They're maybe doing a religious show. Maybe they're just doing things that kind of match the culture. Um, one of the things that we see is that the flesh and our indulgence of it, it tends to go in two directions. One is pride, where we, we act outwardly like we have everything together, but inwardly we know there's something wrong. Uh, the other thing that we can do with fleshly indulgence is we can just kind of go with the world around us and do what everybody else is doing because that's comfortable and easy. And so there's a tendency to go in one of those directions to one of those two directions, but at times we do both, right? So we don't know the specifics of uh, what they were doing to be hypocrites or people pleasers, but we know that that's what Jesus calls them out for. Could have been religious activity uh, that made them look like they were better than everybody else. And so they had that reputation. Could have been that they just matched what was going on in the culture around them and avoided confrontation. Okay. Could have been a combination of both. There are things that the world would recognize that Jesus says are good and everybody else says, that sounds great, right? Like within our culture, if you talk about being kind, kindness, well, we could, that's a platform. You could put that on a hat and run on it, right? Like kindness, just be nice, dude, right? Like this is kind of, these are things that uh, our culture would embrace, compassionate, uh, caring about other people, understanding that because of their background and the, the history that they've been through, that their unique story may cause them to have certain things that hurt them and other things that maybe you don't uh, hurt you, but don't hurt them. And so be compassionate, understand people. And our culture would say, that sounds good. But then when we start talking about morality, well, now we're going to butt heads. Okay. And so one of the things I, I want to make a confession this morning, um, um, I'm an odd duck. Um, <laughs> Uh, let me give you a couple of examples, okay? So yesterday we had a family gathering. It was my, my dad's birthday and uh, my mom's retirement party. We sort of put those two things together. We had a family gathering. There was some good food ahead of time. And, and then there was dessert. And when dessert rolled around, there was strawberry shortcake. And so there's the biscuits and the strawberries and, and some whipped cream there. And from a previous part of the meal, there was some balsamic vinegar. And I went, strawberries and balsamic, those are good together. So I took a little balsamic vinegar and I put it on my strawberry shortcake. I got some weird looks for that. Um, there were people like that. That seems odd to me. I don't know about that. Um, so, you know, I do things that are maybe a little bit different. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, we, we bought a car. Uh, we had an issue with a car. And I got tricked and cheated at the car dealership. Basically, what happened was the, the guy that sells warranties kind of lied a few thousand dollars out of my pocket. Um, and then I figured it out. And I, 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 planned for, I planned for two days how I was going to confront him. Um, I had it all in my head how I was going to walk in there. I was going to go into his office and how this confrontation was going to go down. Many of you hear confrontation, you go, not me. I was like, this is going to be great. I caught this guy and I'm, we're going to have a confrontation. I have no problem with confrontation. And so I'm going to let this guy know that what he did was unfair and unjust. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to take this, you know, bull by the horns and, uh, and, and let him know what's up. And so uh, that's kind of odd, right? Most people don't think that way. Uh, I, I don't have a problem telling you my stance on controversial issues. You want to know what I think on it? I'll, I'll tell you. Um, I also believe that silencing those who oppose the cultural narrative of our time, uh, if you go against culture, you're told to shut up right now. I think that's antithetical to meaningful human life. I think you should be able to say what you want to say based upon your convictions. I also think that if you feel hesitant to post something or say something uh, on social media or in your workplace because it goes against the cultural narrative, um, I think that's wrong. 
Uh, I think that you should have the liberty to speak your convictions in a way that's kind and, and gracious. Um, but for you to have to be quiet, I, I don't think that that's right. Um, I don't look to the voices of our age for wisdom. Um, I don't care really that much what the blue check marks on Twitter say. I, I just don't. Um, I, I think it's okay to know what they're saying. I think it's good to understand what's happening in our culture. But um, very rarely would I look at one of those blue check marks and say, man, that matches what I understand from the whole counsel of God. That's wisdom. We have to check these things against the counsel of God. And not just the counsel of God that's culturally convenient or easy for us to get along with, but the whole counsel of God. And so that's where I go for wisdom. Um, I believe that God has maintained the integrity of the Bible. Um, and that when we approach the Bible empowered by the Holy Spirit and we, we read and understand what the original writer intended for the original reader to understand by looking at language, history, and culture, we can know what God's will is. You don't have to guess. Um, when you approach the Bible with a, with a good understanding that God has preserved this, that he used an original writer to communicate something to original reader, that by, by looking at language, history, and culture, we call this hermeneutics, that if you do this well and you allow the Holy Spirit to guide you, you can understand what God's will is for us as people and for his kingdom and for you as an individual believer. You can know this. Um, I believe that any other approach to the Bible will result in a wrong understanding of what it says. Um, you don't just sit and read in a personal vacuum devoid of context to understand the Bible. You, you, don't, you don't look at the Bible and lay our culture on top of it and then say the parts of it that match our culture, bueno. Uh, the parts of it that don't match our culture, we're not going to pay attention to that. That's, that's not how you would do that. If you took that approach to any piece of ancient literature, you wouldn't understand what it was intended to communicate. That's a bad way to understand things. And so I don't think we should do that. The other thing I want you to know is that in me saying this, if, if you join me in this, and this approach to truth, and this approach to life, um, we are odd together. Um, you have to understand that by believing and practicing this, uh, you and maybe 5 to 8% of the rest of the people that you meet in the United States of America are on the same page. The other 92 to 95% of people that you meet will disagree with you. Um, that's, how, that's how low the percentage is of people that go to the scriptures in the manner that I just, that I just talked about. It's what we're going to do this morning. You're, you're kind of weird for being here this morning, quite honestly. <laughs> But if you really want to know truth, if you really want to understand God, if you really want to know him, this is the, the revelation that he's given us. And I don't mean just the book of Revelation, but I mean the Bible. And what he's done for us in this is that he, he's given us a, a way out of just being sheeple. You, you ever live a life as a sheeple? You just kind of go along with what everybody else says. And you just kind of follow along with it, even if it is utter nonsense. You just kind of follow along with everybody else. And you look at our society right now and some of the things that are believed that go against all of human history. It's pretty hard to go along with it, yet so many people do. 
And that's because we are some ways conditioned to follow along with our culture. It's easier to follow along with our culture. It's easier to just go with the flow. It's easier to avoid confrontation. But if you want to get away from just perceived popularity and cultural conformity, I, I think we should because what popularity and cultural conformity, what they'll do to you is they're going to they're gonna stagnate your spiritual growth. If you're a Christian and you're just going with the flow of our culture, your conformity to the image of the Christ, uh, to the image of Christ, is is being stopped. Um, it's going to cause you to harm the ones that you love. If you just go with the culture, it's going to cause you to harm the ones that you love. Uh, it, it's going to cause you to stand in opposition to the expansion of God's kingdom in your life, as well as being used by Him to expand His kingdom. You can't just go with the flow. Uh, but the church in Sardis, they, that's what they were doing. And if the church in Sardis were looking to have someone speak on Sunday morning, I guarantee they wouldn't invite me. <laughs> they would have called me names like close-minded, intolerant, judgmental, and old-fashioned. They would have said things like, this kind of teaching doesn't consider the need for the, uh, the, of relevance, right? You've you got to match this. You've got to be relevant. And as I've said already, God's word is always relevant because it demonstrates time and again the human condition of our sinful rejection of God and his ways in favor of fleshly indulgence. And they would have said that such a message, it's not going to attract enough people. Even worse, if we go to that type of message, it's going to make us unpopular with our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, and our civic leaders. If we were to retweet what that guy has to say, we're not going to get a lot of likes. And so the church in Sardis didn't truly care for faith in Jesus because it was too difficult, too outside the box, too demanding, and too insensitive of what people of their time wanted. They were more interested in pleasing people than honoring God. That's what Jesus had to say about the Pharisees, the religious elite of his time, that they cared more about the applause of people, the praise of man, than they did in honoring, in honoring God. And here's the thing is Jesus knows this. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Write to the angel in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you, you are dead. And so the, to the church of pretense and hollow faith, Jesus reminds them that he has everything in his hands and that he knows everything. If you were to look at Revelation verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, or chapter 1, verse 4, it talks about these stars. And so what you have in the spirits and the stars is you have uh, the seven angels of the churches. It's, it's either literal or a metaphor for the complete ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's either a literal angel that's going to each church or uh, there's the complete ministry of the Holy Spirit. I don't see why it can't be both personally. But... There's, a, there's an angelic presence in the churches and God's own presence there as well. And so he knows what's going on. Um, he, he understands that there's a facade. He understands that while they proclaim to know Jesus and they proclaim to have life, he says they're actually dead. You put on a good show, but Jesus sees what is true. He says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That name, that word reputation, it, it means a generally held opinion. That when people talk about you, generally speaking, they say, That's, they, they, they seem to have life there. 
They, they seem to demonstrate things that are good. They, they outwardly, they look like they have it together. Jesus says, inwardly, you're dead. Now, I know it's not the first funeral that I went to, but the first funeral that I can remember was my great-grandmother's, Mima. We loved Mima. I still love Mima. I can't wait to see her again. Um, and uh, just a really amazing woman. I was a young boy when we went to this funeral, and so uh, it was an open casket, the first time I'd ever been around anything like that. And I remember walking up and looking at my great-grandmother, and as a young child, you just kind of think, this is weird. You know, like I don't quite understand what's going on. But I remember in that service, my grandfather walked up, my great-grandfather, granddad walked up and he looked at Mima, and he said, she's not there. I remember it distinctly. He said, she's not there. He understood that her spirit and her soul was somewhere else. The, the body lay there, but the body had no life in it. They had, they had put makeup on her body, and they'd done her hair, and they dressed her. But there was no life there. And, and so what you realize in Jesus saying this is he says, you're, you've, you've put on the makeup. You've done your hair. Outwardly, you look like you're alive. But here's what human effort does. It puts a smile on a corpse. It cannot bring life. Your own fleshly indulgence, the, the things that you turn to, uh, the, the, all the things that you're walking into, the, the ways that you're pleasing people and looking for the affirmation of the world around you or the affirmation of the other religious elite. As you go and you do this, you, you, you look like there's life in it, but there's no life in it. You're dead. And so the only thing that could even be perceived as a compliment, he says you have a reputation for being alive. It's, it's not a compliment. You're really good at fooling people into thinking that you have the life of Christ, but you don't. Maybe you've even deceived yourself. And so he says, what's the proof of this hypocrisy? He says, the proof of the hypocrisy in verse 2 is that, uh, he says, be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I've not found your works complete before my God. And so the, the proof of their hypocrisy is that the works of Christ-like love and truth, they're not a part of their life. Last week I, I read those verses where Jesus says you can judge a tree by its fruit. You can look at your own life and test the authenticity of your faith based upon the transformation that you experience in Christ. If there's no transformation, the authenticity of your salvation and your faith is a question mark. And so you say, well, well, if I have this question mark, what, what accounts for complete works before God? And he says, your works are incomplete. They're not complete. Do I need more religious zeal? Uh, maybe I need to try harder, read the Bible more, sing more worship songs. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in and I'll do all the religious things. Give me the list. I'll do them. Your works are not complete before God. Maybe, maybe I need to do more for others. Maybe it's more kindness. Maybe it's more compassion. Maybe I need to be more involved in the community. What, what can I do to be saved? 
What's proof of salvation? Jesus answered and he says, Love the Lord your God with your heart, all your heart, your mind, your strength, and your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hinge on these two commands. Uh, proof of salvation for you and I is that our hearts and our desires are being transformed to match Jesus' heart and desire. Now, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He, he came to seek and save the lost. He came that we would thirst no more. He came that we would hunger no more. Your mind is transformed into the mind of Christ. You begin to think like Jesus. He causes the patterns of your thinking, the synapses in your brain, they get rewired. Not to match and be conformed to the world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we focus on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then we offer our bodies. We give, uh, our strength isn't our strength, it's the Spirit's strength. Jesus walked this earth completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit and seeking to be living a life that's in line with the Father's will. His soul, his mind, his emotions, and his will. He made his choices and he felt what he felt through the lens of who God is. And because of that, he loved his neighbor as himself. He gave up his life for you and for me. He joined us. He walked in our shoes. He experienced humanity, temptation, and yet was without sin. And then he gave his life a ransom for many, once and for all, so that sin could be wiped out. So that all who not just know about this, but believe and trust in this, would be saved. That those who believe in Jesus' death on the cross as the payment for their sins and his resurrection from the dead as the proof of his lordship and deity, they would be saved and given new life. But their works were incomplete because their works were about pleasing people. Their works were about the approval of others. Their works were about receiving popularity. Doing what worked within the culture that they lived in rather than relying on timeless truth. And so the issues are known. These fakers who are like a corpse, they have no life in them, and as a result, they can't do anything that resembles lifelike activity. What, what should they do? Verse 3, remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. He says, remember. Remember what you have received and heard. Now, we know that Ephesus is not too far from this town here, Sardis. In fact, all the churches in Asia Minor that uh, are being addressed by Jesus through the Apostle John. Ephesus was the major city in that area. Well, we know from the city of Ephesus that Paul had a ministry there. John had a ministry there. Multiple people who saw the risen Lord Jesus and were understood to be apostles that were commissioned by him to share the good news of who he was and then lay down sound doctrine. They set up their ministry in Ephesus because it was a major hub. And from Ephesus, 
Ephesus, it would move out into the rest of the, this Roman province. And so we know that Sardis, they would have had access to letters like the letter to the Ephesians. They would have had access to First and Second Timothy. They would have had access probably to First John. They definitely would have had access to the gospel of John. And so he says, remember what you have received and heard. Uh, people who were eyewitnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they walked in your city, they shared letters with you, they gave you the testimony of Christ, they demonstrated the life that is in Jesus with some profound miracles for these people. Um, and so the, what you have received and heard, keep it. That means you can't let anything corrupt it. You can't keep something and corrupt it. You can't rely on the word of God and put something else on top of it. You can't take what the apostles teaching and what Jesus revealed in the gospels and then say, well, that's nice and good. But also, this would be more, it'd be far more culturally convenient if we could put this on top of it. It would be way more advantageous for our popularity if we let go of some of these teaches that people around us don't like. And so it seems that Sardis had gone that direction. Uh, but what he says is receive it, what you, keep what you have received and heard, and repent. Um, that's a changing of our mind. God, you, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind. Your mind and my mind has to be rewired to match the things of God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our thoughts until the spirit of God and the word of God impress those thoughts upon us and change the way that we think. That's what repentance is. It is a willingness to have your mind change. Not just a willingness, but a desire to have your mind changed by the word of God and then conform to the direction of the word of God and allow the spirit of God to empower you to do so. Repent and live. He says, if you are not alert... I will come like a thief, and you will have no idea what hour I will come upon you. This is where the cultural, historical context of the city, twice they were taken by surprise attacks and lost their city. Uh, Jesus says this in multiple places. Uh, one of them is in Matthew chapter 25. If you've never read Matthew chapter 24 and 25, I encourage you to do so. If you've never read any portion of the Bible, I encourage you to do so. But... <laughs> These verses here, is, it's the parable of ten virgins. And what Jesus is doing during this time is he's telling them what it's going to be like when the kingdom comes about. Now, when we talk about the kingdom of God, this is his rule and reign, one, within our hearts, but also, two, when Jesus literally reigns the entire earth. Um, and so there's an aspect of this that is already, that God reigns and rules within my heart. And there's an aspect of this that is not yet, where we await Jesus' return. He's speaking to his return here. He says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they did not take oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, Here's the groom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, No, there, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. 
When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins came also and said, Master, Master, open up for us. He replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that people who are genuinely saved live like it. Uh, People who genuinely have relationship with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, they pattern their lives around his return. People who truly have relationship with Jesus Christ, they don't live temporal foolish lives. They don't fall asleep. They don't go for the ways of the world. They don't conform. They keep what has been revealed to them and repent any time that it's revealed that they aren't. They're not perfect, but they sure love Jesus. And so one of the things that this passage makes us do is it makes us look at our own lives. Now, I've already said, you being here this morning, you're all odd with me, probably. But it makes us look at our lives and it makes us say, does the pattern of my life reflect love for Jesus? And if the patterns of my life for a long period of time Say, say you, you had a moment where you said, okay, I, I, I mentally assent to the truth of the gospel. I need a savior and he died for me. Probably it was Jesus. And you go, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. And then five years go by and the same patterns that you had before that moment, all of them still exist. Ten years go by and nothing is changing in your life. What passages like this do, they make us say, maybe the authenticity of my faith is not legitimate. Maybe I'm not saved. Because I I, I agreed to it either through cultural understanding because mom and dad went to church or grandma went to church or maybe you went to a camp as a kid or whatever the case may be. And you had that moment where you go, okay, yeah, I agree, need a savior. But then the pattern of your life never changes. Your faith is a question mark. It may not be legitimate. You may not have said, I truly take up my cross on a daily basis and want the Lord Jesus to guide my life. I am not the judge of this. This is between you and God. But the scriptures do this on a repetitive basis where they tell us that if the pattern of our lives does not demonstrate love for Christ, we should check the authenticity of our faith. If you're more in love with the world than you are with Jesus, it's a question mark. And that's between you and the Lord and perhaps bring some wise counsel in to help you discuss this. Now, I don't know if this is you. I'm not telling you this is you. But between you and the Lord, you need to have this conversation. If you do not see a changed and changing lifestyle marked by purity and holiness that matches who Jesus is and his revealed word, then it's a question mark. That would be what it is to be awake and watchful. If you are not alert, awake and watchful, I will come like a thief and you have no idea what hour I will come upon you. 
Um, one way or another, we're all going to meet Jesus. Either he's going to return and you'll see him in the clouds and it's going to be something else. Or we'll end our lives here and we'll move on. We'll pass away to the next stage of life. That hour will come upon all of us. And for those who are in Christ, he says but in verse 4, but for a few people in Sardis who have not, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. There is a remnant in this church. The, the church is a whole and Sardis is dying, but Jesus sees and rewards the faithful remnant. The stats are changing bit by bit, but in the United States, there's some 60 to 70% of the population that would say, yes, they are a Christian. The number of people that would affirm a biblical worldview and an understanding that the scriptures are inerrant, provided uh, through God and the original writer communicating to God's truth is in the scriptures. The number of people that believe that is somewhere between 5 and 8%. That means that there's about 120 to 130 million people wandering around the United States who would claim to be Christians but are going to not know the hour that is coming. And so Sardis and the American church have a lot in common. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. That word defiled, it means to disgrace oneself with impurity, sin, and worldliness. If you were to look at the Old Testament, and we can learn from the Old Testament, by the way. The Old Testament law, things that defiled us were things like being associated with death, being associated with sexual impurity, being associated with the worship of false gods. Any of those things took place and you had to go through a cleansing process because you were defiled. And so he's saying there's some of you that haven't done that. You haven't gone the way of the world. You haven't given in to sin. Uh, you're not just doing what's culturally comfortable, but instead you are maintaining what has been brought to you through the apostolic teaching and the word of God. You're maintaining. You've repented. You've changed your way of thinking to say that I don't look to the world around me for truth. Instead, I turn to Jesus. And any time that the Spirit of God interacts with your life and He shows you a way that you've still matched your life to the ways of the world instead of God's Word, you repent of that too. You change your mind again and again to match what God has revealed. And so, He says that when you do that, you walk with Jesus in white because you are worthy. And that word worthy means fit for honor. It means that... The only one worthy of honor is Jesus. He's the only one. He's the only one without sin. He's the only one that's overcome sin. He's the only one that's defeated death. He's the only one to walk in human skin and never sin. He's the only one worthy. And what allows us to be worthy is not our self-effort. Not our ability to change ourselves. It is our trust in Jesus to transform us and make us new creations. And then he attributes to us his righteousness. He who knew no sin 
became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. He takes everything that is his and puts it on us. And because of that, we are dressed in white in his holiness, in his purity, and we're then worthy. There is no other way to stand worthy before God. He says, any who do this, verse 5, in the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and I will never erase his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to listen, that means to hear and obey, to do what the Spirit says in the churches. Excuse me, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And so for those who overcome, there's a promise of eternal life marked by purity and holiness. White clothes, purity, and holiness. Now, Sardis, they, they struggled with being conformed to the world. They struggled with religious performance. They struggled with self-effort. Uh, they struggled with people-pleasing. They struggled with doing what was popular in the moment. When you look at the culture around us, would you say purity and holiness are hallmarks of it? And so this is the danger that Sardis faced. This is the danger that you and I face, is that we would conform ourselves to what is comfortable within our culture instead of having the courage to trust Jesus. That we would conform to what is easy and wide rather than the narrow path that has difficulty in it. I spoke with someone this morning that they, they shared that they lost their job at the place that they were working because June is the month that it is and pride is what we associate with it, right? LGBTQ Pride Month. And they said that they weren't willing to set up the LGBTQ Pride events at their workplace. It just wasn't something that they were comfortable with their, in their conscience. And because of that, they lost their job. So the choice is, what's easier? Conform or live your convictions? Will conformity result in the gospel being shared? Will conformity proclaim the name of Jesus? In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says to Timothy, a man that he left in charge in Ephesus and a man that he wanted to be strong in the Lord. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others to do also. He says, what I want you to do is make sure that the gospel moves from one generation to the next and that you raise up another group of faithful men and women who will be able to teach the truth of apostolic teaching, the, the truth of who Jesus really is. And then he says, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in, concer in concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. 
Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Uh, The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What's he saying? You don't get to have two masters. You can't be a soldier and entangled in the ways of this world. You can't be in Christ and conform to the world. You can't do it. You want to win? You want to be crowned victorious? Then, then compete according to the rules. Jesus has laid it out. He's saying this is what, what not, not like literal legal rules, but like here's the way. Here's the pattern that if you match your life to it, it's going to be something that brings God glory and people salvation. And then he says, here's the reason why we should live this way. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and descended from David, according to the gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a trustworthy saying. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And that passage is referenced in your handout in John chapter 10, is where Jesus says that he's the good shepherd and that no one can take his sheep out of his hand and that he gives them eternal life. He is faithful to his promises. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ angers some people. It wasn't popular to preach about Christ in John or Paul or Timothy's day, and it isn't in our day either. We don't stop just because some people don't like to hear it. We press on because we know that there's power in God's word. Souls are at stake, and Jesus is worthy. Some will criticize and laugh, but others will listen and be saved. And what we, the faithful remnant who trust Jesus, must do is we must endure for those who have not heard the good news of Jesus Christ. It seems that the pattern of our nation is headed in a direction where it will be much easier to conform than to proclaim the truth. It seems that the pattern of our nation is headed in a direction where it will cost you something to be a Christian. Jesus is worthy. His reward is greater. Comfort and ease have nothing on the purpose and meaning of following and proclaiming Jesus. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to learn from you. We thank you for the opportunity to know your will. We thank you for uh, your spirit who guides us in the study of these things. We thank you for spiritual wisdom that we could never acquire on our own, but instead we, we turn to you and you freely give it. We thank you for that grace. I pray for those who have a false salvation, a salvation that's built on something other than genuine trust in what your son Jesus has done for us. That they would turn away from that false salvation and instead trust Jesus. 
That they would look at the cross and see Jesus has paid the consequences for their sin once and for all and that they would believe in their heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to prove his deity and to give us new life. And that once and for all, they would begin to pattern their lives not in conformity to this world, but in conformity to the love and grace and righteousness of your son Jesus. For those that have already made that choice, God, we, we do pray that you would empower us, that you would embolden us, that you would give us courage, that we would not back down. Because in backing down, we forfeit the reward of sharing you. We forfeit the privilege of making others know what it is to have relationship and life with you. So we thank you for this boldness. We thank you for this, this grace. We thank you that your spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, resides in us and will give us what we need. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family. 